the one that relate to even corpus two. I don't think if I've ever taught corpus two. I'm sure I have in a few years. It's a very nice theory teacher. And particularly to be asked by Father Rob to um, share some things that are very close to my heart. And so I hope that we have a good time together today and that maybe you, you would find yourself impacted by God's word uh, in a way that would be formative for you, that you would hopefully look back and think, okay, what I intended to be for God, to some measure was shaped on that Sunday afternoon. Okay, so um, I say that because I'm saying some things to you that have had that kind of effect on me since I was a brand new Christian. So Father, we commit this time to you, and we ask that you be very present, that your spirit would be powerfully active, that your word would be alive and sharp, that our hearts would be generous to you and open, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to his church, and that we would have this time in the presence of Jesus, who is our teacher. And oh, that our hearts would burn within us as he speaks to us. Well, for all of you here today, VIA is not a new entity to you. Um, what I hope is, is that you have got to know us over the years, some shorter and some longer periods of time. I hope that you have found out that servanthood is something that is highly valued amongst us. I think I know the reason for that, why, why we value it so highly. I believe the reason is uh, that we value the notion of servanthood is because God himself values it so highly. At least I can't think of any other reason. Why do we love it? Why would anybody love it? Um, except that God himself does. So how do I know with certainty that God values highly what we would call servanthood? Because the tr this truth is at the very heart of the Incarnation. Why did the Son of God become a man? I, I ask you that question. Um, through, through some of this, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Um, I'm going to pause and give you a moment to just make a few notes, just a few bullets, a few thoughts. It's my way of helping you to interact with the material, make you think for yourself a little. And so... Um, some people will be listening to this on a video, so I want them to do the same. When I ask a question, it's not a rhetorical device. And they're not usually rhetorical questions. Um, it's so that we don't assume things. That we say a word, we assume what we all mean by that, but we've actually never thought about what that word might mean. And if we haven't thought about it, no wonder we're so, uh, the impact upon us is, is little. Okay, and so there'll be numbers of junctions. I will just pause for a minute. I'm going to ask a question. I may not pause for very long, but just think to yourself, what is the answer to that question? Even though it might be something that might seem straightforward. So when the Son of God became a man, 
what two reasons was there behind the incarnation? You can answer out loud. You can take a stab at it on paper, but if we're going to, to, to limit that number to two, the two chief reasons for the incarnation, what would they be? You may want to take a stab. Salvation. Okay, salvation and? To fully embrace and engage with the human condition and experience. Uh, for God to do that? Mm -hmm. Yes, so I would, I, that's true. I would, that will collapse into this for our salvation. Yet to fully embrace the human experience in order to save people from the human experience. What else? To reveal his nature. To reveal the nature of God. The two reasons, the chiefest reasons for the incarnation is to reveal God and to redeem humanity. To reveal the true nature of God and to reveal our true nature, our true state, before God. Meaning we are a fallen humanity in need of salvation. To reveal his true nature and ours. And in that case, when God revealed his true nature in the person of his son, what was most evident about that nature. What struck people strongest? What made the greatest impression? What was there that stood about, out about the Son of God carrying the true nature of God that struck and changed people? Well, in the earliest period of the church, even prior to the apostolic writings, there was a liturgy that circulated in the church. A liturgy about the incarnation. And that literally shows us what the earliest Christians found most compelling about the incarnation. And so we're, we're going to turn to that Philippians 2. Verses 3 to 9. Um, I know, just depending on what Bible you have, this particular uh, version that I have, the NIV, doesn't, it, um, it doesn't uh, set in a different typeface when, 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 when the author is quoting something that he himself hasn't written. But in my old uh, NIV Bible, that was the custom. When there's a poem, a hymn, a liturgy, something that the, that the author hasn't penned but is quoting, they would, they would sit apart in a little different typeface so that you knew that was happening. Um, so how many of your Bibles, how many of them would you say that your Bible does that for you? Okay, um, well, verses 6 through 11 of this passage are, are an early liturgy slash hymn. Now remember, the earliest hymns were liturgies. 
They were sun truth. And not all sun. And the, the fact that Paul is quoting this means he didn't offer it. It actually pre-existed the Pauline writings. That's how early this is. This is in the first 30 years of Christianity. And so if you were to have asked Christians in that age, what was it about the incarnation that struck you? What moved you? What spoke to you? What was there about the nature of God that gripped you? This holds some of the answers to that. So let's take a look at it. We started started verse one, so we have some context what Paul was addressing. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, because that's not love. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself that, that's humble, that counts others as more significant, that looks out for other people's interests, that each of you uh, have this mind amongst you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is presented to you, given to you in Christ Jesus. And then the, this, the next word, who, is the beginning of this ancient literature again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The old King James Version says, um, who thought it not robbery, robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't robbing something or meaning taking something that wasn't his own. He possessed equality with God. It was, and, and to, um, that wasn't, he, he didn't need to rob it or steal it. He possessed it. Uh, you might want to think, he did not think of equality with God a thing needing to be grasped at. Because he already possessed it. But, so even though he's equal with God, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is what struck them about the Incarnation, was his humility. You ever think of, of God as being humble? This is God revealing his true nature in the person of his Son, and what struck people was that he was, he was humble. The humble God. Who came to redeem the world. And so that's something I want to keep uh, in front of us this afternoon. 
Have you ever thought of God as being humble? As behaving humbly? And, and is this not one of the chief things that Christ came to reveal? That he himself was, he is the humble son of God. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And so this ancient liturgy has two purposes. Number one, it is an exaltation of Christ's humble servant nature. And it is also an invitation to the church into that same nature, to embrace the same nature. Remember, that's the context. He's talking to the church to be humble with each other. Why should you be humble? Because at the incarnation, God revealed himself as humble. The Son of God came and embraced humility. He came and walked a humble path. Therefore, that, that's Paul's argument. Therefore, you, you should have the same mind. And be humble like he was humble. And so if we're supposed to embrace the very nature of a servant, if he took upon himself the very nature of a servant, a couple questions. What exactly is a servant nature? Because we don't have Real, like really servants in our, in our culture. Awful close to it, depending on what job you have. You might think actually it's closer than you think, Tom. But we certainly, we probably don't have people that, that um, are, are exactly servants in the way that this language is using it, meaning that, that they don't own themselves. Uh, and, and, and where we do have that is, is definitely unlawful. A travesty, seen as a travesty, and we're trying to, to outlaw it. But in a society where servanthood was a, a norm, an accepted norm, what did it mean to have the nature of a servant? Well, I think we could probably find lots of answers to that, but, but, but of course the two chief ones in this text is he humbled himself. Humility, rightly understood. And he became obedient. A servant is one who is obedient. Who, who is submitted to. Who has a master who follows instructions.
And as we go on, maybe a, a little bit of a picture will fill out to, because we have some translation between what it would have meant to have been a servant in the first century. Now, Paul is using that in a, a metaphorical way. When he tells us to be servants to one another, it doesn't mean we are slaves to one another, but we are taking some of the traits. We, we, we are acting toward one another as though we were that person's servant. And it's interesting that he does that because that's what Christ is doing, is he is choosing this. So confused. Not many slaves, I suppose, ever chose a life of slavery. So this is an interesting part of Christianity where they see this social norm that is very undesirable in almost every way, but then Christ chooses it. He took upon himself. And so as we go on, we can ask, what does that look like for us to do that? In what way are we obedient? What does that look like for us? And maybe two more questions could follow on from this. Let's, let's not miss the obvious. What is meant by humility? Word we'd all use. But it can be elusive when it comes to definition. Anybody want to take a stab at humility? That's the um, ability to discern when, when you need to make some changes to put your, put your life in line with God. Okay. You're saying that's what a humble person would do? That's what a humble Christian would do. Okay. I think there's some good truth there. It, it, it might be hard to think in what way was Christ humble according to that definition. I'm not saying that's wrong. He chose to value those around him okay. far higher than himself. Okay, so that's humility. That's, that's it. It's mentioned in the text, so that's Qualities. Any anything else? Thoughts? If you said to someone, oh, "That's a humble person," what would you mean by that? They're not conceited. Okay, they're not conceited. Um, now, interesting, because that's what I—that's where I go. As someone who's not proud, I find it easier to define in the negative. It as the absence of pride, and that is true. That's one of the definitions. If you looked up the dictionary, say that. But in some ways, it, it, it doesn't answer as fully if it only has a negative interpretation or a negative definition. What is it in itself? If you're not prideful, you're what? Something humility, is that all it is? Is lacking in pride? No, it is not. So speaking of, so instead of not speaking about yourself, who are you speaking about? Or is that what you kind of mean? Like someone well, it's just that. Of others instead of myself. Okay. Okay. You're all on to something. I'm just trying to, to 
push the point a little bit, not that anything anybody's saying is wrong. <clears throat> to, to kind of the jugular is a lot of theological instruction does this is the words that we use, we use them for long enough, we kind of think we have a handle on them, and then we think when we have to define them, we're like, oh, maybe I don't have a handle on them. And if I don't have a handle on it, how do I actually embrace that humility? How do I actually see it and recognize it? And it doesn't mean that our instincts are wrong. I do find it, it can help to clarify what is meant by humility. Then I think we could proceed to say, where do we see humility in Christ's earthly life? And somewhere along the line, we should say, this probably ask the question, what's so great about humility? I think during the time of the Greek philosophers before Christ, it wasn't actually seen as, a, as an asset. How does Christ come along and make this a shining quality, an admirable quality? We're going to touch on this a little later. There's two words that are often joined together, the humble poor. And there is an association. So in, in, in a kind of early Greek mind, What's so great about humility? Poor or humble? Who wants to be poor? I would say the, the give of everything when you have nothing to give. Okay, when you have nothing to give. Okay, you probably write that down. So she's saying something that's probably a little bit even more profound than. <laughs> I mean, we do have to kind of say that again when we have nothing to give. Uh, the giving of everything when you have nothing to give. Okay. Because there is something about nothing. See, it says he emptied himself. Another translation says, actually, translated, he made himself nothing. And again, we're going to have the present nothing, no, nothing of what? An absence of what? Some, one verse that he made himself of no reputation. So, what does it mean to be humble? Literally, it means to bow down, to make low, or to bring low. Don't you hate it when every time someone gives a definition, you have to find another definition? What does that mean to be brought low? <laughs> to make or bring low. And it had both a literal and a, and a metaphorical understanding of lowness. So, so literally, it could be a, a, a literal lowness, a reduction of height. So sometimes a, a river could be, there's one, one kind of, um, I think it's a, kind of a reference in Greek literature to a, a river being humble at its low season, because it wasn't powerful then. During the time of the year when the river ran low. But, but we're mostly dealing with, with a kind of metaphorical of that. We don't mean physical lowness. So we may mean lowness in terms of social lowness. Sometimes it has the over some economic lowness. 
and we'll touch on spiritual loneliness. So to, to, to humble or to be humble means to make someone lose prestige or to lose status. That's a form of, of loneliness. That they had a high place in society. And there and to be humbled would be could could mean to lose that place and have a low status. It, it, it could in, involve something more aggressive being to humiliate or to abase, which was done especially to slaves. To humble oneself meant to make oneself of low condition, to make oneself, here's a key word, insignificant. Uh, weak, poor, of lowly status. Uh, it could mean to be poor and needy. Again, why? Because the poor were humble. They, they didn't have social status. One of the reasons why poor and humble are often twinned together. They, they, they weren't powerful. They weren't highly thought of. High. They were lowly thought of. The poor have nothing to boast of. Like, like was raised, they're not proud. But we can say they have nothing to boast of. They have no powerfulness. So Christ starts with all those things. Significance, unlimited power, the highest status in the universe, the one and only glorious Son of God. And he voluntarily lays it all down, lays that status down. chooses it. Interesting, many of the early church fathers, the early church really got this truth. I see it in many of the church fathers who were um, well-bred, well-born. They were aristocrats. They were very long for aristocratic families, many of them. Wealthy, influential, highly educated. None of it's low, it's all high. High education, high wealth. High status, high born, high bred. There's nothing lowly about them or humble. But when they came to Christ, it was this that struck them about Jesus. They weren't blinded to it by their high status, they were attracted to it because of their high status. Of the one who was the glorious one who co-creator of the universe, co-ruler of the universe with the Trinity, and how he willingly divested himself of it all. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He didn't do it to prove anything. 
or to make himself a hero. He humbled himself. He chose lowliness. And they were so affected by this that they did likewise. They left their aristocratic backgrounds. They embraced literal poverty. I don't mean just poverty of spirit. So when you read a lot of the church fathers, this, this is their stories, and that's why when you read their writings, why they write so beautifully, because they were actually highly educated. They were lawyers, and they were scholars, uh, rhetoricians, been taught in reasoned argument. And, and so they, they still carried that with them. They wrote beautifully. And they made themselves of nothing, even though they came from so much. I think if I did it, I'd have a sour face. I think they did it with a happy face. I, I guess I better do this. It's, you know, it's laid upon me. It's what real Christians do. You can hear the language of obligation. I think if I did it, I, I wouldn't. I might, I might, I can see, I can see it in Jesus. So I think, well, I guess I better follow suit. So I'm not gonna like it. And why did they run into it? Why did they consider this a privilege to follow Jesus in this path? And we, we don't really get it because modern Christianity doesn't look upon Jesus' humility as we're looking at the word humility now, investing yourself with significance, and power, and influence, and status. We are seeing Jesus as the means to get all those things. If I was a really good Christian, then I'd be famous. I'd be like a local celebrity. And I'd be on stages everywhere. And I'd write books everybody wants to read. I'd be influential. I'd be the guy. How did we get this so backwards? And to do it all in the name of Jesus, who emptied himself, gave it all away. When it's used in a spiritual state, then it also takes on the, 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 the idea of being servile, being submissive. Because of, probably because of the connection between humility and servants are humble. When we take into consideration that in the Old Testament, the word humility refers much more to actions than it does to an internal state. We might think, well, I feel humble on the inside. But, but that kind of humility would be foreign to the Bible. Actually, a humble person isn't just humble in their own estimation. It's not just humble. Humility is more than a state of mind. A humble person does humble things. Acts in humble ways. 
So that being the case, take a look through the passage again. Where now a little, a little, a little wider understanding of humility. Where do you see humility in Christ's earthly life? Let me take a look at the passage from verse 6 on. He did not cap up. He emptied himself. We could, we could even ask, what did he empty himself of? He didn't empty himself of divinity. He was still God. We say this, he emptied himself of divine prerogatives to not act out of his divinity. Meaning that, that he couldn't just live, live a quasi-human existence. Not, not a real human existence, because if at any point the things got tough, he could just act out of his divine prerogatives and change everything around him. And, and therefore, he would have something in his disposal none of us have. How's that a human existence? So he actually said, I'll, I'll lay that outside. I'm 100% God, but I won't act it out. I will lay my prerogatives aside because I've come to save the human race. I've come to embrace humanity. And if that's the case, they don't have that power. So I won't either. Just that I understand that correctly. Um, you're saying that he wasn't acting godly, but he did have conduct miracles. Yeah. People, but it was, he wasn't acting godly for his own benefit. For his own doing. A, for his own benefit, and also he did those miracles as a man dependent upon God. Okay. Okay. So as a human with a relationship with the Father and the yeah. Holy yeah. Spirit, rather than as... I think the, certainly the vast majority of the miracles were miracles done as in his humanity on dependency upon God. What about the fact that he didn't sin, though? That was humanity, because... Yeah, now we're taking off to a little different topics here. Uh, <laughs> let's, if, we, if we keep it to humility, then his humility would have seen even that he would put himself in a sinful world. But he didn't have to. That he would put himself in a place where he was susceptible, where he could be tempted, and he didn't have to. Who would want that? It's a great question. Respecting you. But you're getting into the, the, the doctrine of what's called impeccability, which if we do that, we, we may not swing back to our topic. <laughs> So I say, whatever you want to go on that, the question that is a fixed point, which is where was his humility? So part of humility is vulnerability. Like he lives in kind of this almost invulnerable, this invincible existence, and then becomes a baby. Inborn into poverty. They are poverty. Where's the poverty? They are refugees trying to escape a, a madman Roman emperor who's trying to, who's, who's committing infanticide. 
So when you think of the right now 900,000 displaced Syrians, think of the incarnation. When you think, uh, think of Jesus has a heart for them because he was one. The son of God is now a displaced person moved to Egypt being hunted by a madman living a life of poverty no room at the inn it's and he chose it all and he didn't do it for the things that are motivated like well if I do this I'll be a really great Christian this seems like the heroic thing to do, the epic thing to do. So not only does he do that, but then he's silent about it for 30 years. I'm going to have to fight the temptation to say, hey, just, just so you know, did you see what I did? See how humble I was there? Humility doesn't draw attention to humility. It doesn't, humility doesn't parade itself. It doesn't draw attention to its accomplishments. And I could go on describing humility, and every time I do that, I would show how far I would be from the mark. So there's a few things we're going to want to look at over the course of the time is where, what was feeding this? Why didn't he need it? What was feeding him all the time? Because too often through my Christian life, if I get credited for something, that feels kind of nice. And I can almost present it if, it's, if what I do is under the radar, nobody notices. So what fed him? Why would he choose it? And by choosing, I mean, he doesn't seem like he... No, he wasn't. He wasn't trying to get out of this state. He wasn't wearing it begrudgingly. There's, he believed in what he was doing. And he wore it with ease. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. So if I was going to go bring the gospel to Scotland, because he's bringing the gospel to the world, so that he, he scans the world, and of all the people you would want to identify with, he chooses the lowest cast of people and says, I think I'll be one of them. That's what happened. The, the, the lowest people on the proverbial totem pole, he said, yep, I think I'll become like that. Being here's humble, being born in the likeness of, of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient because that's what a servant does. A servant obeys a master. A servant follows orders. And so when you're, you know, when, when a servant is standing before a master, the master says, well, I'd, I'd like you to make me chicken. He says, you know, I really can't be bothered. Those chickens are really tough to collect. 
Hang on, I'm just, I'll just give you Brussels sprouts tonight instead. He doesn't talk back. They don't talk back. They don't negotiate. They don't uh, contest what's being said. That's the nature of the servant-master relationship. You tell me what you want, I'll go do it. So that, and that is a litmus test for me. I can tell when servanthood is even. To the degree that I can test or push back, I can tell it's low in me. And my degree of willingness and quickness to listen, I know that it is higher in me. He humbled himself by obedience to the point of death. A humiliating death, even the death on cross. Now we're going to come on to this. Therefore, God is highly exalted. So humility is a prof the profoundest act of dependency upon God. A profound act of reliance upon God. Because he knew that his destiny was a high one. But he empties himself of the prerogative to put himself there, to get there on his own steam. And he knows that if he humbles himself, it's an ultimate act of reliance that God alone can lift him to that high state. And we would be saying, well, we'd be saying, well, what happens if God doesn't? Or what happens if God leaves me here? Or all the questions. But he was convinced that if he humbled himself, God would highly exalt him, the hand of God alone, and bestow on him the name that is above every name. I want to talk a, a little bit about my own journey of, of, of learning, about humility and servitude. And, and, and the reason I want to be this personal is because, as I said, in the Old Testament, humility had pertained much more to acts than it does to just an internal state of mind. So I, I need to somehow put some feet to humility. Um, so a little bit of my story. I was invited to a Christian camp. My parents were new Christians. They took me along to a Christian camp. I thought, what is a Christian camp? And what was it get a Christian now? But I still remember that place. And I still remember them singing their songs because it was like a morning youth Bible study. And they sang this song that haunted me in a good way. It's true. Somehow it captured me. And, and it was humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. I, I would like to, if I had a ability to sing, I'd give you a tune. But um, you will recognize it and then I'll be humble. <laughs> um, so I don't recognize it, Todd. Yeah, that's my thing. Um, did anybody know that song? Humble yourself and then say the Maybe. Have to hear it. <laughs> Humble yourself and say the He will lift you up. Anybody know that? Oh. Okay, well, I have not Does it repeat, that. He will lift you up, like a few times? I think it's, it's, yeah, it's you can do it in a round, part, too. You do it in a round. The first part is humble yourself in the sight of the That part. <laughs> 
that if any of you has a, knows that song and has any kind of a voice. What <laughs> 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 a team we make. Okay, just take my word on it. That song haunted me. I don't even know I wasn't even a Christian yet. I was just starting to come to Christ. I think partially I I had a form of loneliness to me that wasn't biblical loneliness. Um, I had undesirable forms of loneliness, which is I was terribly uncomfortable, terribly insecure, uh, terribly unsure of myself as a teenager. Um, and this song told me that I humble myself, he would lift me up. I don't have to do it. Somehow it got inside of me. It's hard to explain. Um, in, it, it's, of course, based upon the scripture in James. Humble yourself in the sight of Almighty God, and in due season he will exalt you. Seemed like a great deal to me. Really? How does that work? Because in the world I just come out of, humility isn't rewarded. It is scorned. Lowliness is scorned. Um, it is looked down upon, and it is made fun of. So what have I come into now where lowliness is an asset? that God looks upon and rewards. Um, there's another scripture that, of course, goes hand in hand with this. That those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. What scripture is that again? Well, the first one is James 4. I don't have the verse right now. The other ones were repeated multiple times. We're, we're, we're going to look at some texts. Um, let, let's take a look at a couple. Because, but with this question in mind, man, I'm not just trying to look at all the verses I can out of with humility. My purpose is for you to look at those verses because each of them will um, define humility. It'll, it'll explain humility a little more deeply for you, uh, as opposed to just see how many verses we can find that have the word humble in them. Um, let's start with, um, well, quickly, Matthew 23, 12. <laughs> give you that reference. Eleven and twelve. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. 
whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See what I thought was a great deal? Well, if you try to exalt yourself, God is going to take you up and take you up. But actually, I was already low. All I got to do is embrace him. I just, and God will do the rest. I, I just thought, that's just like the best deal I've ever heard. It really, it really got in me. Um, Let's go over to Luke and then we'll pop back to Matthew. Luke. Let's see, maybe Luke, Luke 14. So let's stay here. Matthew 18. While we're in Matthew. Uh, we'll start at verse 1. Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to be the greatest. So, first of all, I want you to take heart that right amongst Jesus' 12, this um, was present, this inclination to want to be great, greatest. They, 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 they had the humble incarnate son of God right there, and kind of at first missed the significance of that. Said to the humblest person in the whole world, Can you teach us how we can be greatest as opposed to humblest? So, I've often taken heart with people I'm training are of all about becoming great sometimes. I think Jesus didn't seem threatened by the question. It was right amongst his disciples. You know, the 12 holy apostles were working this through, so don't be afraid of what we see it. But also, he didn't leave that addressed. But he wants the way he addresses it. And calling to him a child. He just takes his little child, puts him in the midst of them, and says, truly, yeah. Uh, Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. So, wow, he took this child and kind of lifts him up as an icon of humility. So what's humble about a child? That seems like a good question. Unless you become humble like this child, I never really wrestled with the text because I never thought of children as humble. But maybe it's because I didn't understand the word humility. Because when we think of humility, sometimes we think of someone who is, is um, mournful or um, has a low self-esteem. That's not humility, actually. Okay? So the absolute need independent. Yes, I think that the dependence upon God. Um, there's a lacking of self-consciousness at a certain age where the child, the last thing is. Now, it doesn't take long for a child to do think uh, we're going to compete against all the other children around me and come out on top. But there is a there is a stage where, as long as I got lots of love from my dad, like there's no competition with that, with and uh, and and it's just um, there is something lacking in self consciousness, um, not trying to figure out how to get to the top of the pack. Um, and then the child, notice how it is compliant with what Jesus is asking. He doesn't have to say, why are you putting me in, up in, why are you going to look, you know, like, he's not fighting Jesus every step of the way. Jesus is 
sandwich, I do this for the child, the child is going along with him. And in that sense, he is humble. He is surrendered to Jesus' will. Not all children are surrendered to our will. <laughs> okay. if, you are, if you don't know that yet, that's true. But this child certainly was. And so I think it's just worth saying, yeah, in what way was this child humble? Well, one of them is he wasn't trying to figure out how to be the greatest. He just wanted to be loved. Just wanted to be a child. And didn't think that it, the measurements of its worth was by having to put everyone around him under him. So sometimes when children, you know, don't, when we don't get loved well, enter wrong forms of competitiveness. Wow. I just think that's great, whoever humbles. So there's a picture of humility. And I'm not answering the question fully because I want you to take away and think about it. Whoever humbles himself like this child. So that when you see a child later today or this week, uh, I want you to ask yourself, what is humble about them? They're lacking in what? What do they have that these disciples have lost? Okay, well, yeah, good word. Explain that to us. Mindfulness. <clears throat> um, I just think of Scarlett, and she just does whatever I do. Right. Like, she's not thinking about what we're doing next. It's, yeah. it's this is what we're doing, yeah. and she'll take along. Yeah. Um, whereas I find in adulthood, you think about the process of like, I don't feel like doing that, yeah. or I don't, I'm not going to do that, because the idea of freedom of choice as an adult is more profound than as a child because yeah. they don't have that. Yeah. This would be where you are. Scarlett just wants to be where you are. That's great. So I want you to continue it up a little bit that when you look at children, um, let's just say this, what qualities about childhood? Not every quality about childhood, but what were the qualities that Jesus is drawing attention to? Not everything about childhood is humble. And not every child is humble. But there must be some qualities that, that there's no there no doubt some ways that Jesus is drawing attention to. And if we miss it, maybe because we're still learning what humility consists of. Uh, Luke 14. Eleven. Um, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There it is again. But look at the context now. So when you start to find the humility passages, find that they tend to be embedded in a story or a parable that is meant to give you a picture of what humility looks like. Because remember, humility is more than just an internal state of mind, an internal disposition. It is, um, it is in your, reflected in our actions. So this is one of my favorite parables in the whole Bible. Anybody that knows me, you probably know that. 
Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, they chose the place of honor, saying to them, when Jesus said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, both will come and say to you, give this place to this person. Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So at an ancient Near Eastern um, wedding feast, of course, the, 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 the spots in the, in, in the room were arranged strategically. The one closest to the bride and groom, these are the places of honor. So if you came in and said, I want honor, I want to be honored here, you would sit in one of those places. But if you received a sit in those places and that wasn't given to you, then he says the master of the banquet is going to come, the person that's organizing this is going to come and say, that's not your place. And, and in front of everybody, you're going to have to get up and walk down to the place of least honor, and it's going to be a matter of shame for you. Then you will begin with shame, and you will take the lowest place. Involuntarily. You don't want to. You're not choosing this. You'll be made to. But when you are invited, why don't you, Jesus says, why don't you go sit in the lowest place, place nobody else wants? So that when the host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. See? So, so humility here is the absence of self-promotion. In the absence of self-importance. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So that, that is a deep parable. And when I went to Scotland, as a missionary in 1999, I felt the Lord impress this very deeply on me. And I felt like it was almost like giving it to me like a secret for moving forward in Scotland. So I arrived at a tiny little village of that very few people knew about 300 people and felt like I'm going to look for the, the lowest spot in my village um, and see what could happen. Um, and I remember thinking that I just, whatever the lowest spot is, I, I'm not going to take someone else's spot. I'm not going to look for a place of honor. I didn't come to Scotland so that I could be honored. Um, so that people would say, look at him. So, and, and I think it's, I, the Lord was meeting with me in, in a special way those days. So that's part of the story is he was meeting those needs. When we're driven too much, which I have been, when we're driven too much by the, the need for honor, it's coming out of some place of deficiency in us. But at that point, I, I, that day, I, I didn't have that. So I just wanted to take a low spot. Um, and I did. It, I mean, here we are. The, the events I was speaking at before coming here were all larger than my village now. And, um, and I loved this village. And I just thought, I'm going to be the biggest support to the local pastor, who was John Murdo. John Murdo. I'm not I, I just was looking forward to being there and stacking chairs and helping in any way I could. Um, but it was probably by the second week 
someone came to me and said, hey, would you like to preach next Sunday after you? And I was like, no. And in my mind, this is not part. I wanted to close one. So sometimes you wait for long periods for that to happen. And in that case, I don't know why it was such a short period, but I know how deep it was in my heart. And, and, and I tried to, to many, many ways to, to look for the lowest seat around Scotland. But I, I remember, I'm telling you, because part of my story is the Lord just kept lifting me up. Every time I had to put myself down and take a low spot, he just kept saying, well, come up, sit up here. Um, it was amazing to have seen uh, these truths in action. Uh, Luke, Luke 18, 14. Maybe just before I go off that, do you understand why humility is a statement of radical reliance upon God? Because part of us, of course, would like to be recognized. And we do want to do something significant. But, but, but we end up trying to put ourselves in those places to be recognized. To act in such a way to say things that would draw attention to ourselves um, and to make people see us right. And so when we're humble, we say, I think God could do that. He will speak a word on my behalf. He will cause people to see me better. And 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 so in my journey, sometimes I had to write out many years where I could tell people did not see me properly. And they might have even arrived at hostile opinions. And everything in me wants to go and correct them and say, that is not me. I don't think you have got this right. And believe me, if you were to know me, that's a serious temptation because everything about those not fair. That um, they do not have this right. And I always think that if I go speak to them, maybe they would see it differently. But I don't feel it's the right thing to do. And some people may find it easy to live in that environment. I actually don't find that easy to live with when people have really wrong end ideas. Um, and, and, and yeah, I don't, and, and, and I got to see them all the time. And I don't find that easy. I think some people, it's like water off a duck's back. They hardly even notice. I actually notice. And, and I don't find it easy. But that's why that's a test. That if God, my Father, wants me to be seen in a different way, and if He wants to correct that misjudgment, could I express radical um, trust in Him by waiting His time until He does it? And in the meantime, I know that that person is looking down upon me. Um, so you, you've got your areas, and I got mine, and. Um, but the core human desires we have the same to be seen as, to be known, to be not be misunderstood, to be accepted, um, and to be celebrated. Uh, we all have these. Humility doesn't deny those things. It says, I believe I can wait for God to do that for me. And that when God gives me those things, there's nothing sweet. When God himself comes and celebrates me and knows me and sees me and recognizes me, that there could be nothing sweeter. That's what it says, and therefore God, I believe. 
But what it's not doing is denying those core human desires or even making them wrong. Make sense? Luke 18, verse 14. Actually, verse 9. We'll start at verse 9. Luke 18. So again, here's another story that ends up saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. But there's a parable before it. And the parable is meant to show you what that truth looks like. So I'm going to read the parable, and then you tell me what, does, what is humility, how is humility understood or defined. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing up by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. These extortioners, unjust adulterers, are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes off all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or right with God, rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, so tell me, what is humility? Both of them tell a story about what humility is. First of all, the Pharisee. What is humility not? Pardon? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, yes, as a whole. Any other phrases, anything stand up that you go, okay, I understand humility better by seeing what it's not. It says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Okay. He's putting himself higher on the line. Okay, he's elevating himself and compared the sin of comparison. It says, I, I don't know what version this is or what it's in yours, but uh, like the Pharisee stood and prayed, and that's like a posture of like a high posture instead of like being low. Yeah. Yes, I think I think particularly in this story, there is there is some of those over here. But there is um, posture is being uh, is is um, there's attention being paid to posture in this story. Well, well pointed out. Comparison. What is comparison? And even still, through verse twelve, I fast twice a week. I give twice of all that I get. Saying. The way that I understand it or interpret it anyway is putting himself higher than others that don't do that. Yeah, because there's nothing wrong with those actions. Okay. So what was wrong here? Well, I do those things, therefore I am superior. So so he's I understand how he's actually missing the whole heart fasting now. Because fasting is an act of contrition, it's an act of humility. He fasts and he makes, instead of being humble, it's not inducing humility, it's inducing superiority. So when you are fasting and it's not producing humility, it's producing superiority, that's not actually fasting. That is just going without food. Believe me, I've done it in the past. Things that I thought were fasting, they were just starvation. 
<laughs> I was just going to the food. There was nothing holy about it. You see the difference? Not everybody in the world that goes without food is fasting. Fasting is more than just going without food, or else every refugee camp there'd be fasting night and day. He's missing the whole point. What, what, what? Verse 9 is important. It's interesting the way he frames it. He told this to some who were trusting in themselves. Remember, I told you, humility is a step of radical trust in God. Jesus actually uses that phrase, or used right here in this gospel. They trusted in themselves. Their actions, their deeds, even their spiritual ones. They, were, they weren't just fasting to, for God, they were trusting in those things to elevate themselves, to get them right before God. But they were not acts of, and that they were righteous. So that's the difference between true righteousness and self-righteousness. Which is to say, I'm righteous because of the things I do. That is self-righteousness. So what makes the other guy, the tax guy, what makes him humble? I like what you said, the, the posture, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. So like, I envision bowing before the Lord in that. Very lonely before God. He knows what he's done. Confessing Yeah. So because they're they are polar opposites. The one guy is that guy is unrighteous. And he knows it. The Pharisee is self-righteous and doesn't know it. And in the story, which one would you rather be? He's, a, he's aware of it. He's cheated people. Deceived them for the wrong reasons. They're a rascal. This is no less sinful. He is only self-righteous and is unaware of it. He's not righteous, he's self-righteous. And right here is, this is righteousness. It is neither of those. So I, I wonder where, where do I seek to provoke myself? Where do I compare? Where do I where do I elevate myself? And it comes from a deep belief in my heart that if I don't Because if I elevate myself, I'd be seen, or people would think I'm important. And there's times where I can feel like the Lord say, I remember being in a board meeting uh, here at the church. And I was talking about one of our members that we were sending out to missionaries. 
and I was I was mentoring them at the time, and I was talking about how well they're doing. And as I'm doing it, the Lord makes me aware, you're not telling that story so that people would, you're telling good things about this person. But the reason you're telling it is because you want it to reflect well on you. So not that they think you is well mentored, but you that you think you that you're a good mentor. And, and this is what the Lord said to me. Is everything okay? Like, why do you feel like he was just so tender and doing you okay? Why? Why do you think you have to resort to that? Do you not feel attended to? Do you not feel people like what what's happening? That you have to kind of tell your, your good deeds in front of them. What's what's wrong? He was so tender and it was so convicting. And I and he, the, what was the grace? The grace of God's evening. I was really trying to tell something about myself. And he went right for the heart of the matter, which is, oh, what's happening in your heart? Did you, did you feel like you need to give them a reason to appreciate you? Do you feel underappreciated? Do you feel, oh, just gutted me. But he was so kind. Gentle and shepherd-like. He didn't land me a big review because he didn't need to. Just that little question was all I needed to let me know that I think I did feel a little underappreciated. And this is not the right way to go about it. Make sense? Couple, couple other passages. Back to the Gospel of Matthew. Very end of Matthew 11. This has been such an influential passage for me. 1128, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you a rest. So, so there's a key word. What's restful versus what creates anxiety and heaviness? Take my yoke upon you. That'll be restful. Learn of me. I'm going to tell you to learn something from me that will make you, that will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. The other translations actually say humble. Remember I told you that's what it means to be humble, it's to be low. So they've actually put the word lowly in. I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart. And if you are like me in this way, if you learn this from me, you will have rest for your souls. Because there's nothing restful about trying to get ahead, trying to be seen, trying to get promoted, trying to be recognized. We ought to be like Jesus in every area. But aside from this, I'm trying to think of how many other instances does Jesus explicitly say, learn this from me, be like me in this. Can you think of any other passages where he explicitly says, I'm like this, you be like me in this. It's implicit everywhere. 
But here it's not implicit, it's explicit. Learn this from me. I am gentle and humble, I am lowly. Learn this from and if you do, you'll have rest of your souls. In Ignatian spirituality, we call, you know, we, we say that, uh, oh, just escaped me. You will have internal free, interior freedom. You'll be, you'll be free. And so I have sought to want to learn this from Jesus. My nature without Jesus is not one of gentleness. Uh, and my natural disposition is not one of where I just want to humble in people's eyes. But I am learning from him. And he is a good teacher. A couple of things this has enabled. I can think of three times in ministry over the last 34 years where I left leadership for a year. Um, because I didn't, I felt like servanthood is something you must be learned in an ever-increasing way. It's not just something you learn once. I felt like I needed to get out of leadership or out of the public eye and deepen servanthood inside of myself. Jesus actually spent 30 of his 33 years of human existence out of the public eye, quite hidden. And I felt like I needed to at times get out of the public eye and just be a part of the church, be serving behind the scenes. I can think of three times at least. I think the, the Lord has been more committed to putting this in me than I have been committed to receiving it. Um, when I was 29, I was uh, ended up becoming the president of the Bible school, which is quite ridiculous because I was very young and inexperienced. Um, but the Lord has his ways. So let me tell you what happened the very first day on campus. I, 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 I still remember coming in the, 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 the back door coming in a side entrance. It was my first day as what's called president-elect. And I barely came in the door, walked down the hallway, and one of the older faculty members met me. And he said, president-elect, um, Todd, I just want to say I've got all kinds of ideas for you. And he started to tell me his ideas, and I barely come in the door. So I was there. Um, I was listening to him. Um, but I wasn't thinking the most positive thoughts, thinking this is not really what I want to listen to right now. Uh, I barely came in the door, um, and I didn't give what he was saying a very sympathetic hearing on the inside, though outside I, I listened respectfully, and then kind of just went on. I got down to my office, first day in my new office, I barely sit down in my chair, and the board starts to speak to me very clearly and says, you, you, you didn't really listen to that. Is, is that what you want to characterize your presidency? You were polite, but inside you didn't show respect to what he was saying. And he just kept up, and I was like, okay, I can understand. I didn't do that well. And then the Lord said, I'd, I'd like you to go apologize. I said, Lord, 
I barely got out of my office. I haven't been here for minutes. You want my first act of precedence to go down and apologize for my misbehavior. And I felt like the Lord just in his little whisper said, well, why wouldn't you want to do that? He said, you know why I wouldn't want to do that. That's so humbling. And then he says nothing, meaning precisely. He didn't have to say anything, meaning I would actually prefer that that would characterize your presidency. Oh, man. Uh, I said to my secretary, I'm back to I am not happy about this at all. It's fighting against everything in my nature. And I had to go down um, to that man's office and knock on his door. And um, I have a minute of your time, yes. I just wanted to say that uh, when you were saying these ideas, I, I didn't listen like I ought to. And I did not show respect to your ideas like I should have. I just wanted to come and say I'm sorry. Uh, and I don't want to be that kind of leader too. And interestingly, he says, I don't even think I had the president ever down in my room, little alone coming to deliver an apology. <laughs> I said, I'll get used to it. I'll probably be here doing this lots. Um, but how I carried myself in that position of authority um, mattered to Miller. Um, unfortunately, more than it mattered to me. And you see, having me do something humble, because all I wanted to do is say, okay, I realized my mistake, I won't do that. But having me actually do something humble in, in gross humility. Um, I had a, an experience that really shaped me when I lived on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. Um, I ended up getting to know some different people around the country, and at that point, there was a lot of prophetic around Scotland and uh, around the world. And interestingly, if you'd ask people in Scotland, where's the hotspot? Like, the whole world seems to be probably with Scotland. They would have said, Isle of Scott, keep your eye on Sky. Something is happening there. So I had some English leaders that, that asked me, would you gather any that I had a special relationship with the, the leaders in, in my area? So would you gather them so we could speak to them? Uh, I won't pretend that I didn't have some apprehension about that, but I did it. Uh, we gathered them. And uh, that night was an important, was an education for me. Because the, the, these English leaders, who were wonderful godly guys, um, but they, they would repeatedly use the language, we're just here to serve, we're just here to serve. But at a certain point after they had done their speaking, we said, we want to know what you guys think. We're just really here to serve. What do you think? And the Lord told me, watch how they respond to, to one of the pastors, to Roddy. Because Roddy will always be the last guy to speak. And he will listen to everybody else, and then he will weigh. He's not a person that's quick to speak, but when he does speak, it's worth listening to. He's not a man of a lot of words. He won't, he won't speak for a long time, and he will speak last. So, it was his turn, he always has a kind of, and he goes, and they cut him off, 
within a few seconds and talk to a couple of them and then really give them a chance to speak. And here's the line the Lord gave me. Watch for those who use the language of servanthood, but they carry themselves like masters. If they're using the language of servanthood to, to cause us to like lower our defenses, they're actually not using servanthood at all. They actually want to leave the whole thing. And here's someone who's like a real spiritual person, a very spiritual person, who actually, there's something about Roddy, he's somehow connected to the area, connected to the area. And so when he speaks, he's kind of speaking for the area a lot of times. And they couldn't. They were more interested in what they had to say than in listening to someone who actually really had something to say. So be careful, people. Be, be, cautious, of, be cautious of using the language of servitude and carrying yourself like a master. Why did the Lord tell me that? Yeah, be, beware of those who use the language of servanthood, but they carry themselves like masters. Because they're not using servanthood authentically. You understand? Because that's not servanthood. Servanthood has, has the other in mind. But here's the big question. Why was the Lord telling me? Was it so that he could like tell, tell, tell on the English? Why was he telling me that? It had to do with me. Sometimes you see human nature, your own human nature, but you don't see it until it's lived out outside of you. And then you go, oh, I do that. And so in some ways, that person did serve me well. Acting is a mirror to what is in me. So I want to be careful. I don't want to just use the language of servanthood if I don't really. I said someone to be your servants, just here to serve you. I want to be careful that in that I really mean those words. Because they're words that are really meaningful in Christianity. And if I'm only saying that to lower someone's defenses, you know, to make them trust me, to make them let me in, but then I get in the door. See a different version of me. Um, I, I want to be very careful of that. Let's turn to Luke 7 17. say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also when you have done all that you were commanded let's say we are your unworthy servants and we've only done what was our duty. 
that what servants should do. Wow, that's a tough one. Where is this passage? Uh, Luke 17, 7 to 10. We, will, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's a, do you think that's a tough passage? Those are strong words. Now, interesting, um, they have to be understood against the gospel. I mean, Jesus doesn't think of us as unworthy. He thinks of us as very worthy. He's the one who imputes worth to us. That's what I mean. He sees worth in us. But it is definitely a verse against entitlement. Is people who don't see servanthood the way he sees it, they don't see it as a privilege. They see it as if I serve, then he'll owe me something. And get the entire nature of servanthood wrong. If I serve, then I'm entitled to something. And so the point is, what servant does that? A servant says, "That's I, love, I want to serve you. That's my job in life. It's my station in life to serve you. And so I wonder what was happening at this time in Jesus training the disciples, where he was teaching these servants, but where was a sense of entitlement starting to creep in? I do this thing for you, therefore you owe me big time. So that's obviously a strong attitude, which means it needs a strong antidote. Stronger words. And I think because of that, I need to discover a form of servanthood that sees the supreme joy of it, the beauty of it. That when I serve, God tends to me, he cares for me and loves me and affirms me. And therefore I can do it without a big price tag attached to it. I can do it without saying, I served you, you owe me big time. Or I served in our church, you owe me big time. Because if we do that, it doesn't give people the chance to freely give to us. Because they don't want to give to us because because they owe it to us. That's, that's not a gift. They want to do it back to us because they love us. And I want to serve people freely because of the way Jesus has freely served me and not make them feel like they owe me. Now, have I ever felt that sense of entitlement? Yes. I'd love to say no. That would be lying to you. At times, I have felt particularly people are really acting badly. I have found that in my instincts, I found I have served you for all these years and you did not. And I have felt the Lord, uh, when I'm ready to hear it, say to me, so you think they owe you now? That they're in your debt. Hmm. What happens if you were to freely give them that power, freely have received 
freely give. This feeling will go away if what you give to the needy is the feeling that will be available when you give to them. That's what a servant does. And now that has been an antidote for my soul. Because if I think they owe me and they're not paying up now, even it'll be kindness or courtesy, because I've been kindness to them and I've been shown courtesy to them. And so surely the least you could do is pay some of that back now. And I'm one of the people I felt this most strongly with many, many years ago. I felt like the Lord just reminded me that the original version of the Lord's prayer is forgive them their debts. Talk to you he owes you. It was a colleague from a long, long time ago. And some of them I love dearly, and it ended up um, not going well after many years. So I kept doing acts of kindness, hoping you would bring them around. So I would show up at their house with birthdays and show up with Christmas presents. And anyway, I could protect them or defend them or speak well of them. Um, but part of me was always hoping that they would come around. If I did all this kindness, and if I loved you really well, you would come around and be back in a relationship with me. Somehow that morphed over time into I'm doing all this for you and you're not paying it back. You're not doing this to me, for me. And I felt the Lord just remind me of the, you know, that, that, the kind of literal version of the Lord's prayer, forgive them their debts. And ask yourself, what would it feel like if you were just to say, you owe me nothing? I love you and everything I've given you is a gift. And it's been a privilege to give you those gifts and you don't owe me nothing. Not even common courtesy. Not even you need to speak well of me. Because part of me was, well, I've shown them this much kindness. At least they, could, they don't have to owe me that much. At least they owe me this. They can speak well of me at least. No, Todd, you're still expecting. Because of what you've done, that now is payback time. They could at least do this. What happens if you just they owe you nothing? What happens if you wrote it off like a debt? You owe me nothing. First thing, my heart went absolutely light. Remember, interior freedom. The way of the servant is a, is a way of internal freedom. And the second thing that happened is all my trying to get them to turn around never worked. And once I said, you owe me nothing in a matter of days, you don't owe me nothing. You don't have to speak well on me. You don't have to be courteous. You don't have to think well on me. In a matter of days, they began to make much more positive steps. But I let go of it. Humility is a step of radical trust in God. When I trusted God and turned over his hands and just said, I will take a humble path here. I will be their servant. They owe me nothing. Uh, he got very involved and in the course of time brought about that absolutely glorious reconciliation in my relationship. And all my effort to get them to see me properly was backfiring. And a couple years later, they came back to me and they said to me this, I've read every email you've ever written me and I can see it. I read it properly. I can see the kindness. But I couldn't see it now. God opened their eyes to see things really right. Beautiful. Became one of my strongest advocates. So what is from, from seven to 10, what's the tie back here to the question that they asked that he didn't really answer? 
they said to the Lord in verse five, increase our faith. Yeah. Was it, was that demonstrating a sense of entitlement to ask that question? Or is he, is he saying in this parable here that faith comes through obedience? It's a good question. I'm not actually sure. I can't tell if there are some points of the gospel where an author will just put in what's called a, 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 you know, a segment of scripture. I used to call them parables, but I'm not sure I'm saying that word correctly. And, 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 and there's several in a sequence, and it's not, usually you can see the author's rationale for putting them in there. There are a few instances where I can't actually tell when he puts these several, and, and, and here's one, I'm not actually sure what the relationship is between verse 5 and 6 is, and 7, 8, 9. Um, unless that this is something that takes a great deal of faith just to serve somebody without having to ask for anything in return um, is an indication of great faith unless there's another connection you see you can do no that was um that that was the one that I was taught was that they asked increase our faith and then this was demonstrating that faith comes from obedience um, without expecting anything in return. I think that it's got to be something like that. Yeah, that's the closest I can see between what the relationship is between the two passages. Great, great questions. Which had a better answer? I think I follow the same words. That's the best okay. I can come up with. But the problem is, there's not a lot of overlap in language. Like it's not like in the next passage, he's obviously talking about faith or or rewards of faith. So I, I'm not exactly certain. I mean, maybe they thought increase our faith if we have really great faith then we'd minister like Jesus and we would see miracles and people would think amazing things about us. And maybe there's a reason why he takes them back to servanthood. Yes, or okay, or obey you. I see you You touched on another keyword. That, that, that's maybe the one thing um, that it has in common is the notion of obedience. Mentioned in verse 6. Uh, and then um, text 1 and verse 9, he did what was commanded. But I think it still takes a lot more work than that to, to crack into that. Any other questions? I have a random one. Sure. <laughs> um, is there a reason why, like, throughout the Bible, there's a lot of farming references for, like, is there a meaning behind that? Like, the grain of the mustard seed, mulberry tree, plowing, keeping sheep. Yeah. It has to do with the incarnation, is that when God became incarnated in his son, that's part of what it means to be incarnate, is he was very present and involved into the world into which he was born, which was primarily an agricultural world. Yeah, and that's why he's speaking to people. That's you know his his parables, his illustrations are drawn from people's real life, what they knew. Yeah. 
Um, and, and that's why. And, and so we do need some translation. When we're speaking to people that are primarily urban and have very little agricultural experience, we actually have to do some translation for them to say, this is what that would have meant. These people knew this. This is what they did. They, they had land. They sowed crops. They, they, they knew the seasons of the, the year, years. And so, so this made a great deal of sense to them. We have to do a bit of translation to people that have never planted this in their lives. I think that, you know, no, comes from souls. <laughs> so my question is, do you see any beauty in humility? Because I don't think people are going to split their, they may just go, oh, well, I guess I've got to do this, but I don't think they'll really want to be humble and want to be servants. If they, if they aren't attracted, so for me, the reason I was attracted to it is I know I can't go the other way. I couldn't exalt myself. I, I didn't have anything going for me. So my temptation wasn't to think too highly of myself. My temptation was to think nothing of myself. So everybody's got different temptations. And, and so for me, I saw its attractiveness that for a guy that was on the lowlier side of life, um, I saw, but for you, we will not aspire to be servants and we will not want to embrace humility if there's not something about it that allures us and looks attractive and beautiful. And actually, even people that were in the passages and looking for power, like some of the other passages where they're looking for greatness, Jesus doesn't say to them, you'll never be the greatest. It actually says that if you want to be the greatest, here's the way there. So he actually touched in with some of their desires. You want to be greatest? Then you be the servant of all. So that's never been my desire to be a greatest. But so, but there's other ways Jesus had to touch something inside of me that touched into some deep core desires in me that made this look like this is the way to those core desires. This is an attractive proposition. This is, this is a beautiful invitation to join with Jesus. And I liked the thought of waiting and trusting him to exalt me because I couldn't tell when am I exalting myself? When is it the new season? And so if I just left it to him and when he's ready, he'll come and call me and he'll promote me. That felt like safety to him. And I have a personality that makes that kind of emotional safety is important. Where it's scary if I put myself into something, and then like the parable, someone can come, come along to me and say, so "You go down in front of everybody." I'm like, "Oh man, you actually put that." I mean, second, you know. I've, and so, what is it in you that Jesus would like to say? Here's who you are, and here's some meaningful things to you, and and and, and so here's why servanthood and humility can be beautiful. To you. Um, they can be attractive to you. And, 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 it, and it hooks our hearts. For me, it's because it makes me feel safe. Because if God lifts me, that's not me lifting myself. That's nobody else lifting me. I mean, they may be joining, keep the echoes of God and joining God, but God is the initiator. And so I've said all the years here, you don't think I should be in this job? Guess what? Neither do I. So I didn't put myself in this job. So here's the people that did. Go talk to them. Glad to go talk to them. But that's why I operate with a sense of security, because I never put myself in it. If I did, I'd be anxious every day. 
But for you, maybe it isn't safety. It could be a completely different thing that God would have to speak to you about. That would touch in something core in you and then help you see that humility and servant is the way to it. And you get to now go talk with Jesus and say, there's a universal call to humility and servanthood, but how does that specifically fail to me? Because otherwise, we're just going to do it because, well, I guess I'm obliged to sort of revolutions do, or I'm just going to be the unhappiest servant ever. Okay. I have went over my time, which hardly ever happens. That's a question. Um, I, this is not to be close for all, but one of my managers at work, one of the first things that he ever said to me as a compliment was that I had a servant's heart. I took as not good because <laughs> of the state that I was in, but actually realizing it now that it is a good thing. Um, so I act naturally out of a servant. Yeah. So where, where are some other ways like being a servant is good and I enjoy it and I love it. If I could serve people all day, it would be great. What's something deeper than that? I would like okay, you want something deeper? Here's a challenge of faith. Sure. Jesus saved the whole world by becoming a servant. <laughs> Meaning, in what way does true servanthood open a door for the kingdom for miraculous intervention? God's love. So, Lord, I am not just their servant, I'm your servant. Mm -hmm. So there's something at this level happening, and there's also something here. As I serve these people, I'm praying that you would become involved in my daily situation. You would look upon me serving them, and then there would become a, a heavenly element involved in my serving that would, that, that would, um, that, that I would begin to see there's more than just my serving them. As I serve, you're there serving them. And doing things that are bigger than you could explain to me. Oops. Okay. How's that one? Good. And that'd be a great for you to come back to Corpus and okay, you wouldn't believe it. I started to serve these people with God in mind. I served them, but I served him. And I asked him, and, and this is the crazy stuff that's happening. Good. Okay? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for. Nice to hang out with you today. Yes. Thanks. Thanks.